Today on The Art Dealer Show, we will hear returning guest Bob Chase say... And I said, yeah, it's sold. And he goes, what do you mean? He goes, to me? And I go, no, to me. (laughs) Welcome to The Art Dealer Show, the podcast for and about the people who sell art. My name is Danny Stern. And today on the show, we have returning guest, Bob Chase. You might recall, or if you had listened back at episode 009, uh, we had a chance to first meet with Bob, and uh, we started what is the first half of uh, this conversation that we're going to be playing on this episode. But before we get into that, uh, I want to pick up where we left off on another thing, and it's when we were at the old art dealer bar uh, before we went into the first part of my conversation with Bob Chase. And uh, to do that, I I suggest we return to the old art dealer bar. So why don't you meet me on over there? Uh, As I noted, uh, this is part two of not just my conversation with, with Bob Chase, but it's also part two of our conversation the one we were having right here at this table at the uh, the old art dealer bar. And just to refresh your memory, this goes back again to episode 009. If you want to go back there, if you haven't heard it before or you just want to listen to it again, uh, I talked about a phone call, a phone call I received from a friend in the business. A, I referred to him as Mark. Mark was asking a question, and he said, Danny... Uh, you know, you're giving a lot of thought about where we are in the business and who we are and what it takes to be a success in this field. And you're talking to a lot of people. Uh, so let me ask you, and he hit me point blank with this. He said, what should I do next? I said, I, I don't entirely know what it is that comes next. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not psychic and I've never proven to have any kind of great gift of being able to prognosticate the exact future of anything, quite frankly. I said, but what I did know, what I was very comfortable in believing was one thing, one thing I knew would be true. And that is, whatever the answer is, it would have to do with change. Now, I know that on its own is not very profound. As a matter of fact, it's kind of a cop-out as an answer went. But after I said it, I said, look, I'll explain what I mean right after we come back from these ads. And then when we came back, after I had laid out that nice juicy little tease, uh, I went into my introduction for my conversation with Bob Chase. And what I didn't talk about was what I meant, what I meant by change and, and what that would amount to. Now, to be honest, what was going on was I was setting it up to share that uh, once we returned with the second part of my conversation with Bob Chase, this episode, which I knew would be coming down the line. So here we are. You might want to refresh that cocktail. Uh, I know I do. Because what I have here is one of those classic Danny stories. Mm, let me correct that. It's not so much a story. It's a, it's a thought. It's, it's a long thought. It's the thing I tell myself to get myself to sleep on cold uh, nights, the kind of nights, and I'm sure some of you are familiar with this, where you, if you're not careful, you'll let your brain chew on itself. 
You know what I'm talking about. And where I first came up with this, we were at an art fair in New York City. Uh, this happened in 2010, which is not a great time. We're only about a year plus out of you know the great crash that took place that led to the Great Recession. And the fair is going about as good as you could imagine. But about two days in, we saw the writing on the wall, and our staff was kind of getting a little bit down. And Daniel and I decided to go take a walk. We were going to go out and uh, scrounge ourselves up at at least a quality New York pizza to bring back for the crew. And as we took that walk, we were probably both thinking about the same thing. We had uh, just experienced a couple bad days in this show in the midst of what had been already a fairly bad year connected to another bad year that came before it. And we started to talk about the situation we were in. We wondered when the times would get better. And what we were asking was a bigger question. And it was one that I think was kind of creeping up on the both of us independently. And it was the first time that we ever had a chance to really discuss it. And that was the horrible thought. A thought worse than being in the midst of a bad economy. And the thought was this. That is it possible that we're not experiencing a downturn in the art business because of a downturn in the market as much as for the last decade or so, we were experiencing an artificial success of an art business that's days had already gone past. And before you get scared and before you think that I'm about to talk about gloom and doom and about how the art industry had kind of already come to its natural beginnings of its ends that are on its way, that's not really what I meant. Is that it was possible that the metaphors we were working on in the art business, they had not been updated. And we had no reason to update them because we wouldn't notice that they've become uh, potentially stale because the times were so good over the last couple decades. The money was flowing, people felt very comfortable, employment was high, and whether or not we were you know, fine-tuned to the change of the climate or the culture, there was always still enough left. There was always just enough people who were still responsive to how we were set up as galleries in the art world. And that maybe once things got tough, that shook that out. And I think there's some truth to that for where we are right now. And as I was thinking about this, and I started to internally ask this question, is there a comparable to this? Are there businesses that have gone through this exact same thing? And are there great examples of that having changed? And then this one thought came to me. And I said this. I said, Daniel, there was a time in the 1800s in this country that having a circus, a traveling wagon and tents uh, circus with a, an elephant and a couple horses and a few clowns and a trapeze artist, that was a viable business. As a matter of fact, there were dozens, maybe hundreds of such family circuses crisscrossing the country. You went into a town with some animals, towns didn't have zoos, not even the big cities for the most part. They didn't have movie theaters. That had yet to come its way. They didn't have live theater for the most part. Honestly, the only kind of entertainment that most towns would experience would be some sort of, you know, uh, square dance. Uh, you know, look, my, my information is mostly informed by movies, but you get the idea. 
And when the circus came to town, that was about as exciting as things went. And that would change. And you know what's coming down the road in this story, right? Eventually, things like vaudeville shows up. And that's eventually followed by radio. And radio was preceded by television and television along with that, movies. By the time televisions had shown up, by the time we hit the 1950s, there really weren't that many circuses left in the United States. They weren't valid anymore. As a matter of fact, all that was left was a collective of the best and few remaining circuses, Ringling Brothers and Bardman and Bailey coming together. And the truth was, they weren't really a circus, not in the way that circuses had once been. They were a novelty act. They were nostalgia. You brought the kids out to see it to show them what a circus used to be like when circuses were a real thing. Circuses had come to their end. And that's how it was. That's how it went for decades. Not much would change. Now, I'm not saying that's where the art business is. I'm not saying that that's our fate. And here's why. Because you know the other part of this. You know that there was another chapter. Cirque du Soleil, which I'm sure I've mispronounced. But yeah, Cirque du Soleil, the biggest thing in Vegas. Tickets are a bloody fortune. It costs more to go to Cirque du Soleil on the road than it costs to have a great seat at the Rolling Stones. You can't go to Vegas without getting to see one of those shows. Every single night, the theaters are packed. What they did was they proved that the circus, the circus was still valid. People love seeing those things. They love seeing feats on the high wire and people diving and they love the lights and the music and everything else. Circus and, and the desire for it, that never went away. And yeah, I'm talking about the art business. People always are going to love art. They do right now. They will tomorrow. They always will. They're always going to want to collect it and they're always going to want to bring it into their own lives and their own homes. The difference is you have to find the right way to do it. Cirque du Soleil figure that out. They made a version of the circus that is valid in a world of the internet, in the world of computer graphics and movies, in the world of, of Pixar, and all the incredible things you can have in the in varieties of entertainment, including podcasts like this one. Okay. Now, it would be a great feat if I was right now able to tell you what the art business's version of Cirque du Soleil is. And I don't. I don't have it. I don't pretend to be the person who's going to come up with it. But I have full faith, full faith right here and right now, that this will come, that the art business will have its Cirque du Soleil, that you might be the person who comes up with it. Chances are it's not you. And when I don't mean that, it's not a dig on you personally. I just mean it, it, it's not going to come from one person. It's coming in bits and pieces. And, and I'm also going to say it's not going to come in the answer form of an app. It's not going to come from a web page. It's not going to come from some form of social media. That, that's not the answer. That's not us. It doesn't answer to the things that make the art business the art business. That's why. Bit by bit, we're going to figure this out. Matter of fact, it's not a thing for the future. It's a thing that's going on right now. I just can't tell you where. Maybe it's someone who will come on this show in the future and can tell us little bits of it. I think that's kind of 
one of the things I hope for along the way in trying to describe our business and understand it better. I hope we also get little breadcrumb clues about the path to our way out of this little bit of forest. Somewhere I know there is there's a gallery owner that's figured out a slightly different way to do our business. I know there's an art dealer that's figured out a little part of it. Brand new, only been in the business for a year, working on the floor, but he's figured something out. And one day he'll show us what that is. I know that's coming. And I don't say that in one of those, I'm trying to rock you to sleep in the middle of the night during a cold storm and make you feel good about things. I just know it. I know it because it's a thing that keeps on repeating itself in history. And with that bit of comfort, we'll be right back after these advertisements. Back in 1997, I was directing a gallery in San Francisco, California. I was young and I was excited. Well, I was younger. And I felt like I had arrived. It was big and it was beautiful and it was right on Union Square. But the one thing that made it real, the one thing that made it special was that very month that I became the director of this big 9,000-foot gallery was that it was on the cover of a new magazine called Art World News. We had arrived that I knew Art World News then, like it is today, was going out to everybody in the art business, that they would read about my gallery and read about how I was the brand new director. And that, that, well, that made me feel fantastic. And why was that? Well, because Art World News back then when it was first released and like it is today, well, that magazine is right in the very center of our industry. And if you have a message you want to put out, if you want people to know about the new limited edition that you produced or the molding that your company produces, whatever it is that requires people in the art business to know about it, then that's the magazine you got to be in. And if you want to know what people are doing in our business, well, then that's the magazine you need to be reading. Art World News. Check it out. Don't be left out. When I started this podcast, people asked me if there were going to be helpful tips for people in the art business. And I said, that's, that's not the kind of podcast I want to produce. And the fact was, I wasn't saying that because I didn't want to produce a podcast like that. I was saying that because I don't really have that many tips. There's only so many things you really have to know in the end of the day. One of them is you got to have a good location. You got to have good artists that you show on the walls in that location. And the other thing the other thing is, once you got all that put together, you know how to tell a story and you got the right art and you're doing the right things, you need someone on your team that knows how to put the word out so that people will come into your gallery and you can sell them something. What am I talking about? I'm talking about a publicist, like the publicist over at Relevant Communications, who you can check out at relevantcommunications.net. They're the last and the most important ingredient in the mix that makes for a successful art business. Whether you're a publisher, an art gallery, or an artist, you do not want to be in a position where you're depending on the primitive tools that we have to work with to get your word out. You need someone who knows the ropes. You need someone who's got a map for the road out there, knows how to get it into social media, knows how to get it into the papers. Allison Zucker-Perlman and her team of publicists over at relevantcommunications.net Please check them out. Okay, in that last little ad, I had one little fib in it, and it was me saying that that's the only other 
piece of information that I had to share. I've got one more little tip, and that is this. Be in the art business. What do you mean, be in the art business? I mean, you can't just sit in your own little gallery, in your own little corner of the world, and expect that you're going to figure this all out. You got to get right in the middle of traffic. That's where you're likely to get hit by something great. And what do I mean by that? You got to go to where other artists are where other art dealers are, where other collectors are, you got to go to the fairs. Now, what fairs am I talking about? Let's start with the one I'm going to be at next month in March. I'm talking about Spectrum at Indian Wells, put on by the fine folks over at Redwood Media Group. And where am I going to be at the month after that in April? I'm going to be at Art Expo in New York. And you're saying, hey, Danny, I'm listening to an old podcast. I mean, obviously, this isn't going on. No, it goes on every year. Just go take a look at the website. We'll have the current information for whatever year in the future you're listening to this podcast. Go to artexpo.com. Go to redwoodmediagroup.com. And you'll get to find out about all the wonderful art shows they have coming your way. So here we are at part two of my conversation with Bob Chase. Bob is the president of Chase Art. Chase Art, they're art publishers, they're distributors, and they even own a couple galleries of their own. They're also part of a long dynasty, if you will. Uh, If you've been in the business long enough, you're well familiar with the art business that his father and grandfather built, Merrill Chase. Now, I'm not going to go too deep into that because, like I said, you can hear about all of that in the previous episode. What I will say is this conversation, this part two, is not the same as part one. In part one, we talked about the history of him and his family in the art business. This conversation, well, it's, it's a little bit more pragmatic. I like it. It's, it's kind of a, a letter to other art dealers, if you will. Bob makes some very good observations about the basics. And despite what I talked about when we were talking over there at the table at the old art dealer bar uh, about the new revelation that I hope and see coming down the line, no matter what that is, it won't change these things. These are the hardcore truths that make for a real art business, that make for real success. These are the elements that are not going away, but ironically, these are the things that get overlooked more than anything else as we get disoriented in the complexities of trying to succeed, hell, trying to survive in the art business. So with that, I'm going to take us back to that wine cellar in the bottom of a hotel where Bob and I snuck away to get to have this great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. There's things that frustrate me kind of out in the world um, when, I'm, when I visit galleries. And it's not all galleries, but, but the willingness of the staff to really dig in and understand, you know, what this work is about sometimes just isn't there. And I get that they have, in some cases, 20 artists in a gallery that they have to represent, which my own opinion is that that's probably too many. It's, it's, that's a lot of messages. But I'm always impressed with the people that not only dig in, but I think where the real work comes in for these guys and and where I am always impressed is when they are constantly just trying to better themselves. And by that, I mean, it's it's not that they read all the material and they know everything they need to know about the artist. That's important. But it's like putting it in practice 
And you know what? That, that collector walked in, I did this, this, and this, and they walked out. Immediately, if you want to better yourself, spend 15 minutes talking about what happened. Grab one of your coworkers, grab one of your other consultants, and like have this postmortem about like, God damn, you know, like I walked out. I thought I had it. I did. Well, what'd you do? And you know, and just start challenging each other. And those are the guys that kill it, I think. Because they're just willing to continue to find ways to better themselves. And you know, we do that a ton here. Like, I mean, I did. I got to witness it a little bit this afternoon and what took place in your own gallery. And I have to say, and you know, you know this as well as I do because you're in the unique position of not only not only owning a gallery, but also traveling around like I do. Yeah. You don't see that hardly at all. It's very rare these days. And part of it's just because it's hard to find people like that. But part of it's because a lot of people who own galleries didn't themselves get brought up with that kind of thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, it, was, it wasn't modeled for them, so it right. isn't ingrained. Yeah. I, mean, it, it, I got it from where I came from. The people who taught me how to sell art, the first gallery owners right. I worked with, that was how they were. Right. You know, we could have that kind of conversation. Right. I still but do that's it. rare. But I, you know, so on, on our, in our contemporary business, um, we, we go, you know, Art Basel and we exhibit and, and these other contemporary fairs and things. So, and, and I like to go and be on the floor of that because, you know, you're going to meet 10,000, 20,000 people in three days, right? You're standing in your, essentially your gallery. You, know, you set up your gallery at these fairs um, and you get pummeled with people. And they just come, you know, they're coming in constantly and you're talking nonstop. You're, you're presenting. It, it, the first thing I do is if somebody walks out of the booth and there's nobody in the booth, I turn to uh, the person that I'm there with and I say, this is what just happened. Tell me what I, what could I have done? What, what, what would you have done? Cause, cause I didn't sell it. Right. And I, I want to know if you would have done something different than me. And I, and I just try and remember that for myself all the time because I'm, you know, I've got plenty to learn. I'm, I'm really comfortable and good with a, with a uh, business to business transaction. That's easy for me. Mm-hmm. A, a collector transaction is harder for me. I don't know why that is, but I find it to be harder. And so I'm constantly trying to like, you know, hone that. But but at the same time, I'm also trying to, you know, foster this whole idea. So I feel like I'm, you know, still in training. Well, I can throw you out an easier version, version or a reason why business is easier than retail is. Because like when you and I do business, yeah. we're both, that's our job. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> we, 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 we buy and sell art for right. people. That's what we do. Right. The person coming in from off the street, that isn't right. what they do. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. So. That's fair. Right. We got to walk them into that first and then. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's probably why I don't own a gallery anymore. <laughs> right. Right. Um, but, I, you know, I like being in, in the frying pan like that. You know, I, I take that. Every one of those experiences I can take and apply to the guys that are out for us in the galleries every day that are, you know, visiting our gallery customers and that, you know, it's just, I think it's important. It's both important and also, I don't see how anybody sticks in this business for more than five minutes who doesn't have that going on. And I don't mean just as you're not going to get very far and you're not going to learn enough Mm. to make a good income. I mean, I think the job becomes incredibly boring without it. Because if you're not behaving in that way, if you're not thinking about it as a craft and as a science and all, you know, yeah. and all the other things as something that you can both develop and become better at every single day, then you're just a clerk. 
You know, you're yeah, a toll taker. I, I mean, I yeah, I hear it. And that, but God, there's so many people that don't do it. It's like I just can't. I can't stomach it sometimes when I'm in a gallery and I watch something that went down and then there's just no discussion about it or anything. And somebody goes back and just sits there and stares at their computer or stares at their desk or something. And I just think, oh, why wouldn't you just engage yourself right now? Is it is it laziness? Like, why wouldn't you just do that? It would make your day go faster. It would make you better. It would be more interesting. It would be like, uh, but that connects to so many things too. I mean, how many times have you, as a distributor, talk to someone in the gallery who's selling your art and ask them if they ever read your materials. Yeah. And have them comfortably tell you that they haven't gotten around to it yet. And you know full well as someone who's worked the gallery floor, there are hours that can go by that there is nothing, nothing. to do. You know, you've called everybody you can call if you did. You've written everybody you can write to if you did. you got nothing left to do other than go to that website and read that article or watch that right. video. Or, do something. Right. <laughs> yeah. Most galleries, you've got at least one other person around. Like, challenge yourself. Go, go, I don't know, make a presentation on a piece of art and see how it goes. Like, to, you know, you and I sitting in a gallery uh, after we've done everything, we've right. done some reading. Like, you know, Danny, like, what's your presentation on that? Because I don't think my presentation is really good on that. I mean, you're not going to do that all the time, but hell, you have half an hour till close. Like, have fun. Mm hmm. For whatever reason, it it, it doesn't always happen, and I, I think it's uh, I think it's maddening, and I think that there's some gallery owners that are guilty of of not being engaged themselves, maybe at that level. So so it trickles down to the staff. I think that's it, and I think it's not entirely their fault. Yeah, you know, I I, I think you're a perfect example of something I often talk about with, with gallery owners, especially prospective gallery owners. We all from time to time get a phone call from somebody who's about to open up a new gallery. These days, not as much as in the old days, right. but you know, you get them. And I will always ask them, I say, well, where have you sold art before? Where are you coming from? Are you, did you work as an art dealer in someone else's gallery? I mean, you know, and a lot of times it's, you know, they were a CPA or a nurse or, you know, and they're 50 something and they're going to take an early retirement and they want right. to have, and, and honestly, it was going to be this or it was going to be a Box Brothers franchise right. or, you know, something. And they just thought this sounded cooler. And I say, look, that's all right. You know what I mean? Everybody's entitled to have their fantasy second career. And I said, but you got to do yourself the favor. If you don't know it yourself, you have to now go and hire someone yeah. who's been doing this for 20-something years, if not more, yeah. and give them a big chunk of your business. They're not going to just come in and be your salesperson. Right. And because you need to infuse your business with the DNA of our industry. Yeah. And because if, if you don't, you're just, you're selling yourself short. You're setting yourself up for a failure. I think so. And, but most of the time? Right. And it's it's too bad. I mean, it's it's frustrating. And 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 I want to make sure I'm clear about you know I'm not having this conversation and sound like I'm bashing on the uh, on the galleries because they're the lifeblood of a lot of what you know we do professionally. And uh, I'm grateful for so much of their energy and and what they do. I mean, I really truly am. I I I like knowing. <laughs> I say like I just want to go to bed knowing that somebody somewhere in the world is presenting a piece of art of ours. <laughs> 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 you know? So I'm really grateful for them. And there's some, we've had so many great partners that have taught me a lot. 
Oh yeah, well yeah. yeah. So I maybe that I think goes you're correcting saying, me on that. I don't mean to no, say I'm not it's correcting academic. you. I'm, I'm I'm correcting myself in that I the things that I'm talking about are are the negative in some cases, and I want to make sure that that I'm clear that I believe there's a tremendous amount of positives, and and I see a lot of it, and I actually learn from it. I mean, we call up dealers all the time. I mean, God, we have our Australian dealer. Um, he, he just knocked it out of the park. He sold like half of an edition. Uh, I mean, it was actually a problem because we needed to deliver things to other people too, but, but he was so good at what he did. I mean, he got his collectors so primed. This thing is coming. You know, he called all of his best collectors. He had all of his consultants call all their best collectors and say, you know what? I'm not going to tell you what's happening, but something's coming up and um, it's right in your wheelhouse. It's not going to be for two months, but I'm telling you right now, I don't even know the price. But let's say it's in the neighborhood of $5,000. You are going to call me screaming at me if I didn't call you to tell you right now, put five grand somewhere. Because when this comes out, I know you're going to want to raise your hand for it. And, and that's it. I don't have anything else to tell you. When I get a picture, when I even know what it is, I don't even know myself, I'll call you. Right? He uh-huh. had those conversations. Then he had another one. Okay, we just heard it's going to be an XYZ piece, right? It's, it's going to be some, you know, great, iconic piece. So I now know what the piece is. I still don't know the price, but I just need to know, are you raising your hand for it? Because I got to call the next guy. I'm calling you for it, right? It's that whole thing. I mean, he sold out half of the edition of our edition. And it was just pitch perfect. It was amazing. That's just, it's old school. It's old school, but it... it now, is it because, obviously, he's great at what he's doing, but are you going to take some responsibility? Did you set him up with that path, or did I mean, he kind maybe. of? Maybe I mean, he and I, I, you know, I don't know where he sort of stops and we start. I mean, we've been working together for twenty years, so it's hard to, you know, we we were we finish each other's sentences, kind of thing, in, in in business. So I don't know exactly where, but the point is, he gets it. It is sort of old school, but he does it. I mean, I mean, some of it has to be done via email. Some of it has to be done via text. And like, he's adapted. He's got younger guys. Like, he understands that he's not just going to call, send, call. I mean, you know, it's not. But he's still going to keep those principles, and he's going to take. Can't do it with everything, but he's going to take you know the things that are meaningful every quarter, really focus on it, and rally around it. Put some energy, money, effort, etc. into it and make it happen. Well, he's also making it a living, exciting thing for the collector. Yeah. You know, he's not just selling to them. He is literally making, he's adding to the journey aspect of yeah. that acquisition. They're following it. They're getting excited. I and mean, this is something that Apple is great with too, yeah. right? Yeah, they, well, they're you know, the, I mean, that's, yeah, they're like masters. Yeah, they start hinting way in advance and they the rumors start. Sure. And, and, awesome. it's just, and by the time you own it, yeah, it's gameplay. But on the other hand, you have a great deal of personal ownership of whatever it is that's come out because you were invested in it at the early stage and you anticipated it's not just some box in your pocket right now. It's something that you've been following the lineage of in the process. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you rob art of that, I mean, that's just really unfair. Yeah, I mean, it kind of goes back to your special cover. You know, how do you make it special still? How do you make it fun, accessible, but still special? Right. That's special. That's, you know, you've identified the person you're calling. You're, you're acknowledging that they're special to you. 
mm-hmm. and that they're getting this opportunity, they're getting this call, and I'm going to do you a disservice if I didn't call you. You would never use these words that I'm using now, but you know, if I didn't call you and give you this opportunity, you say it in a much more genuine way uh, that fits the person. But but that's it. I mean, it's client service. It's you know, pre-closing. It's it's, <laughs> it's the whole thing. I used to have this thing, and I, I maybe have mentioned it already in a past episode, or <laughs> well, again, because it's a favorite of mine. But um, when I had art dealers working for me, and I'm sure you, this will be very familiar to you, where they've sold some client five, six pieces, big load, you know, a bunch of art, you know, over the course of a month or yeah. whatever, maybe in one purchase. And then you announce to them, you know, that artist is coming out with a brand new piece. You should call up that client who just bought all of those pieces last month. And some will get very nervous. Yeah. And the reason is like, you know, I just took a lot of money from them. You know, now here it is. I'm calling three, four weeks later and I got my hand out, which is their perception. It's of not course, the reality. Right. And, and, not what it's about. And, and you know, and they will resist you, or you know, sometimes they won't even say that to you. They just will avoid making the phone call. And if they make it, it's sheepish, and they're really trying to duck out and you know, send an email instead of just calling them up because they're they're not trying. They're trying their best not to get in the face of that client. Yeah. And from time to time, I would just shake them, and I would go, "You need to see this in a whole different context." Yeah. Let's pretend you're the client. And I'm the salesperson. I'm the art dealer, right? Yeah. You just gave me $50,000 to buy some artwork for that collection that I'm probably excited about. That's why I spent $50,000. Right. So I've given you $50,000. And forgive me for the language on this, but who the fuck are you to not tell me about the next next exciting thing that's coming down the line by this artist? Right. It's a great point. It's, It's exactly right. I mean, it's... It's the extreme, but the way you say it, but yeah, but that hits the that hits the point. I bought the right. Right. Exactly. I should be the first guy you call. Yeah. And I've got the right and privilege at that point. I can tell you that I'm no longer interested right. or I don't want you to call me ever again. You know, I bought that right too. Right. But give me the chance to say it. Super important. That comes just with the confidence. We're talking about um, younger people in the business and, you know, how they have to kind of build up to a certain confidence level with different situations. You had, a, you had I'll, I'll throw this back at you today. Um, there was a, a transaction that was happening at our gallery today that you witnessed. And it was um, a transaction where a young consultant of ours who's got a ton of potential, a really great guy, uh, I love this guy. And he got himself into a situation. I hope he's listening and I hope he knows who he is because he is really talented. Yeah, well, I'll make sure he hears this. And so he was in a transaction where a guy was giving him the, you know, here's my credit card. And, you know, for this price, run my card. I'll walk out the door with it today. And he hands him his, you know, platinum card or whatever it is, right? But it was this 25% discount that he was asking for. Yeah, and he's asking for a giant discount. And... Um, you know, it was a deal that couldn't be done. Uh, I'll let you take it from here because I think your observations of it were really good. Well, you know, what I saw was a couple of things. One, he was a bit thrown off his game because the guy was aggressive. And what came with that is that person who did it felt that he was special in the process. There was a meta message in there, which is, I'm a big fish. I've got a little bit of swing in this gallery I've collected here before. And if I come on heavy, I should be responded to. 
And that was the difficulty that the salesman bumped into with him. How do you say no to somebody, but at the same time take care of their feelings about themselves? Right. Yeah, this and, guy, there was an ego involved here and, and all of that with him making this big, bold statement that he was going to do this. And he got, he got it back on track, uh, as, as the story goes. And <laughs> Well, I want to add to it, you know, is what we were talking about early on. He slipped twice. And the first slip was that. He, he didn't take control of it in that moment when he came on strong and then started to build a case for what can and cannot be done in a way that took care of the customer's ego in the process, right. which is understandable. When someone comes on very heavy, you know, it's very hard to take back control over that and care for that person. You yeah. know? And as well, you want to make the sale. Too. So you yeah. kind of get put in a little bit of a spin, you know, because yep. you, you want to be running that credit card also. But then he found out what the limit was of how much that he could actually do as a discount. And unfortunately, the next move that went wrong, and when I say wrong, it's just one of the, he wasn't wrong. It's just the lesson you have to learn. Yeah. Is that he came back and he told them what he could do. Yeah. And he didn't preset that up. Yeah. And once you've done that, you've really dug the hole deep because you've rejected the client because they didn't honor their specialness. And also you've said no and you've given them a disappointing answer and you've put yourself in the position where there's nowhere to adjust from because that is the bottom line number. Right. And yet still, he was able to close the deal. Now, yeah. But I didn't get to witness how your guy fixed it. He built the value back up. I mean, that's really what he did. He, you know, he he really kind of came back and said, "Look, you know, you're." He knew that they were looking at some other pieces as well in the gallery, and um, acknowledged that they were, you know, good customers of of the gallery, and that um, you know that he wanted to do whatever he could to make it right, um, and uh, not make it right to 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 make the transaction feel good for the collector. Now, I should say that you know we have a really strict. Our gallery is probably a harder gallery to work in than most because we really don't do any kind of discounting. We do zero discounting on the art. Um, you know, we have some flexibility in shipping or framing, depending on what frame style they're looking at, et cetera. So there's, you know, there may be some places that we can help somebody out there. And so he had to find the place he could help the guy out um, and make him believe that he was still getting something of tremendous value. And and, and really the Kind of the end of that equation is going back to something that I was talking to my staff about the other day. We were having this really interesting conversation about framing. This is a digression, but I'll tell you how it connects back to this. We were talking about framing and, and why framing is expensive. Um, and what I was encouraging the, the staff to, to communicate to their collectors is, number one, you know, it's all conservation, museum quality framing, et cetera. We, you know, we, we really take this seriously. It's guaranteed. The framing is guaranteed so they can feel good about it. But, but most importantly, you should be thinking not about what they're framing today, but what they're framing in the future. So they're framing a piece of art that today costs X, right? That is going to have such tremendous value to them over time that it's almost impossible to put a value on. I mean, there's, there's a good likelihood that there's going to be some increase in value to the, to the piece of art as well, but forget that. Um, you know, you want to frame it for because you want to love it forever. So... Don't be thinking too much about the equation as it exists today. Think about it as it exists over your, over your lifetime because you want this to be a part of your life and look beautiful forever. Uh, anyway, so that kind of equation. So he came back to this whole quality thing and framing and he built the guy back up. That's beautiful. 
I mean, I'm really glad to hear that because after the midpoint in this, I came up to him and asked where things were at. Yeah. And this is at the point that I found out that he had already told him what the discount was and didn't have the sale. You know, the, the, not the, the discount, the frames yeah, and yeah. the shipping or whatever it was. And then I explained to him, I said, you know, ooh, that's a tough one because you, you, you just threw it out there and now it, it had no value attached to it. But I am really happy to hear that he had the courage to go back, yeah. even though the ship had already gone out, and yeah. fight his way back on he fought it his and way back. rebuild the value of yeah. it, which is fantastic. Yeah, and it was great. So he he winked at me at the end, and he goes, uh, David, the consultant, yeah. at the end, and he goes, they want that one next. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So he was like, he was on it. He was feeling really good about it. Not only did he have the sell, but he really won a customer. He, yeah, he, he won a customer. And because it started as a coconut. Yeah. And uh, anyway, it was just like a classic sort of experience all the way around. But I was so happy for him. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, he's done really well. But, but that was just a good example of somebody who got himself into a little bit of a tight situation and, and worked his way back out and, and had the, you know, sort of uh, ability to think through the different things that we had talked about and start to employ them in a way that felt comfortable for him to dig back out. So that's cool. The biggest lesson I think that he probably should walk away from with all of this, I mean, the stuff we were just talking about, that's classic stuff. But I think there's a more fundamental one in that, which is don't stop talking. Yeah. You know, until they walk out the door and just say no, and that's fine. Yeah. You know, there is no reason. And, and that's what I was thinking about and something you were talking about a little bit earlier when you said, you know, you're frustrated by these people that when they don't make the sale, don't do an analysis of what they could have done better. And I think half the time when you see that, they also end it before it was over. Yeah. They take a no, it gets awkward. Right. And then they kind of get, you know, they go find a visual on the artwork and grab yeah. their business card. Right. And, and give them a ticket out And the they door. start really escorting them instead of just letting the conversation go and go and go until, and then come back to it later yeah. on. And I've seen so many great deals where it's literally on the sidewalk. Yeah. Like the art dealer has walked with them out the door. And at this point, they're now talking about who's going to win the next football game in town or whatever it is. And then loop the whole thing right back and walk right back into the gallery and look at the piece again. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's, you got to stick with it. I'd, I'd revise maybe the don't, don't stop talking uh, to when you have a deal, stop talking. Because <laughs> I've seen... I've seen, yeah, well, there's that too, right. I've seen the other one happen, right, where it's like, oh, my God, please stop talking. Don't, don't keep talking. You don't need to say that now. Yeah, <laughs> now all you're going to potentially do is mess it up. That's the only opportunity you have, right? So, <laughs> you know, yeah. You're going to tell about the great days when they were blacklisted because they're a communist. Yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> stop talking. And find out that that doesn't sit well. Yeah. <laughs> I guess the final note that I would probably say on, um, hi. Hi, are you a wine seller? We no. are, do you sell wine in the cellar? Uh, we don't. We're doing it's a... so cold in here. Isn't that nice? <laughs> <laughs> On the right day, it is. <laughs> oh, no problem. Bye, guys. Uh, bye. That stays in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Everybody should know we're sitting in a wine cellar. And uh, um, so the thing I'll finish on, I guess, with training is just this concept of, I think that consultants should have the mindset of, of always be training. Um, and, and just think about that. And it doesn't have to be on the negatives. I would say an analysis on the positive side is equally as good. So our galleries um, give us 
recap each night of, of what's happened. And, and there's inevitably an interesting story in there 75% of the time, right? This sale happened, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, I want everybody to know the story. Tell me how it went down. We, you know, we all can get better on and analyzing what we, what we missed, but also, you know, let's replicate the things that work. I also think there's a benefit in underscoring the emotional experience of it. Yeah. You know, there's a scene. You ever seen the movie Glengarry Glen Ross? Of course. And remember towards the end of the film when uh, the older salesman, Sheldon, I think is the character's name. Right. And he's finally, he was in the dumps and he hasn't had sales in months and they're going to fire him. And he comes back and he's closed this couple. And it was hardcore sales, right? So, and he's telling the story. And at some point he comes over and he pulls himself close to him. He pulls up his chair to sit at the old guy's desk. And he says, tell me about it. Tell me the story. Don't start at the beginning. Don't leave anything out. And the older guy, you know, salesman gets excited and he goes, okay, well, it was old school. I sat down there at their kitchen table and we were talking for five hours and she made coffee cake. And we cake. Went through a whole oh yeah, I'm eating a crumb cake. How was it? It from the store. Now we just sit there and I got my pen out. Always be closing it. God, that's what I've been saying. They always write to them, this is now. This is that thing that you have been dreaming of. You are going to find the suitcase on the train. The man walks in the room. That bag is filled with money, Harriet. Now, I'm here to do good for you and me, the both of us. Now, I got the pen in my hand, Rick. Hey, 22 minutes by that kitchen clock on the wall. Ricky, not a word, not emotion. And what am I thinking? Is my arm getting tired? No, I did it. They signed. Right, that one's great. It was you. Hello. And then I nodded. I said, Harriet, Bruce. Then I pointed into the living room to the sideboard. I didn't over. He brought us back a drink. Huh? <laughs> and we just toasted in silence. Great sale, Shelley. They're real. For as much nonsense as going on in the movie, for right. as much you know shenanigans, they love what they do. Yeah, it's a craft, and they both know it's a craft. And as a matter of fact, we later learn that one of them taught the other how to do this right, job. Right, right. Yeah, and it isn't just about the lesson; they need to savor it. Right. They, there's a need that you need to make a synaptic connection in your brain that you did something. And you want to roll it over back and forth a couple of times. Well, yeah, it was my dinner conversation last night with my staff. It's like, you know, they were just like relishing, you know, the, these moments. Yeah. I mean, it's maybe it's an illness that we have as people that, you, you know, sell things. But I like to believe we're not just selling things. I, mean, we're, I do truly believe that we're enhancing somebody's life in some way. And I don't mean that in some over-the-top sort of um, holier-than-thou thing that we do here. But the fact that somebody buys a piece of art, it's a really different kind of purchase. Um, it says something about them. They've, they've, they've bought this piece. They've put it on their wall. Now their friends are going to come in and their friends are either going to go, what the hell did you just put on your wall? Or they're going to go, that's so cool. I love it. And either one of those, they're going to have to stand and deliver about who they are as people. And I think that's really cool. And we helped that. I like that. So we should relish in that. That's cool. I think it is. Well, I think I like to think, though, all people who are good at what they do, that at the end of the day, when they come home, 
they have some version of that. Yeah. You know, whether it's a dentist talking about the filling that he thinks no other dentist in town could have possibly have done, but they have the <laughs> right. skills to do it, right? right? You know, it's the accountant that finally figured out how to balance the books from the client who was stuffing all his receipts for the past five years in the back of the closet. Yeah. But he found, he got it down to a perfect zero. Yeah. You know, everybody's got... Everybody's got it. Everybody's good at what they do and believes in what they do has a version of that. Yeah. But I will say that I find this industry really difficult. So if you don't have that, you probably should get out because there's a lot, there's other ways to make money that's easier than what we do, I think. Um, I mean, I think it's, you know, this, this business is, it can be a grind, right? And if you don't really feel that passion, you're probably not gonna. It certainly doesn't pay as well as it is. Right. Right. Yeah, that's never going to balance itself yeah. out. So you got to no, you, you got to have that passion in there because otherwise, you know, come on, go do something else. No, I got excited today. Yeah, you know, I don't know if I ever want to get back into doing daily work on a gallery floor. You know, <laughs> I think I I serve my thirty tours of duty or whatever. <laughs> but going through the process in real time with your salesperson, your yeah. art dealer. I, that's about as excited as I've been all week. It's fun. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, that, the game was on. It was, right. you know, and, and not that this is a game, but there was something to think out. It was a puzzle, right. you know, that, that needed to be addressed. Right. Well, and I'll say an, uh, another thing here, um, and it goes to relationship building. So, you know, in, in what happened today, um, you are on the side of uh, of making our staff feel comfortable with you um, as somebody who's going to be working with them, right? And so uh, when when David he, he needed to go to the bathroom, he was the only one in the gallery and needed to go to the bathroom. And, and uh, so when I called you and I said, you know, okay, what time are we meeting? I'm on the floor of the gallery. David had to go to the bathroom, so I'm covering the floor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, also, I, did, I also told you you will be paying me a commission yeah, to close the sale. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh, but I, you know, it just obviously I juggled myself and thought, yeah, okay, there you go. That's that's good relationship building right there. Let me let so, me switch gears okay. on you just a little bit here, because there's one part about this interview you, you already hit some big ones that I was excited about getting to, particularly the background of uh, your company. Mm -hmm. You represent a really unique artist and art program. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, Dr. Seuss is unique. Yeah. But he's unique in the fact that he is no longer with us. And you've turned it into a huge, huge business. Mm -hmm. It's one of the most significant uh, distributed artist programs in our industry. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's definitely a staple mm -hmm. out there. You've done it by reinventing a lot of things mm -hmm. to make it living. You don't have an artist to bring out the shows. You don't have anything to report about him. He's not out in the world, you know, right. doing a new project or anything you could be talking to. Sure. But yet, this is not a dormant program. Right. I mean, you're, it's as alive as anything. Yeah. But you've been at it since 97? 20 years, yeah. Yeah. I think sure. I saw the first ad in Art Business News in 97, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. Probably. And by the way, the first thing I said is, God, I wish I got to it first. <laughs> I really, I said yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, never would have thought about it, yeah. but I can see it crystal clear now that someone else did. <laughs> well, you were, you, you were one of very few people that had that reaction because uh -huh. I can tell you, you know, coming out of the gate, it was like, okay, children's book author, n no longer living, posthumous prince, 
uh, that are going to sell in art galleries for you know two thousand uh, dollars. I'll take a pass on that. Thanks. <laughs> you know, it was like it, it, it. You know, there was thank God some people that saw it, mm-hmm. but um, that first. I think we went to back in the Art Expo days. You know, we went to Art Expo with a couple of blown up. I mean, I think I. I think they were literally like blown up posters. I can't remember what I did. Somehow, something to get on the wall to show people this, um, and it was it was a, it was grim. <laughs> it was like, uh oh, you, you know. And I remember, God, I hope he would be listening to this podcast, but I I doubt he is. I'll send him a link. Um, Marty Khan, who's no longer, uh, doesn't have a gallery, um, but he he had. A number of galleries in Hawaii. Okay. They were Hawaiian-themed galleries, you know, with paintings of lush, you know, Kauai and et cetera. Had nothing. I mean, we were the farthest thing in the world from what would possibly be sold in his gallery. He, I, God, I'll never forget him walking up. I won't forget it because he was the first guy that said yes. And he's such a great guy. And uh, he's looking around and we're talking and he's videotaping. You know, this big video camera back when it was like, you know, the video camera is like this gigantic thing. And he's like videoing me talking and he's like videoing himself with the art. And he goes, yeah, we're, we're going to do this. We're definitely going to do this. He's like, you know, when is it going to be ready? And I said, well, I don't have anything to give you. Like I, these, I don't even, I haven't even made anything yet. So I'm glad that you're in. I'll call you when we're, when That's we're great. Actually, That's great. But, but everybody else was a no. And I was just like, oh my God, we are in, this is not good. Um, but they came around. They came around. How long did it take before you had what you could call a functioning distribution of an art program? Probably three or four, three years, maybe four years. I mean, it was slow going at the beginning. It was super slow. That, that, that's a lot of patience to buy on the behalf too of, uh, who you're representing. Yeah. Well, we had, you know, we had some performance things we needed to do so it was getting you know we needed to we needed it to work once it hit some kind of a tipping point i'm trying to think of you know articulating what even that could be i'm not i don't i don't really remember what it was but something tipped i think it was just we had enough people that that were actually selling the material through quickly oh i know what it was this was awesome oh my god this was great it was hemispheres magazine I totally forgot about this. I mean, truthfully, United Airlines United Flight Airlines. Magazine. This is truthfully like ridiculous. This just doesn't happen in the world, but it happened. Somehow Hemisphere Magazine says like, hey, we want to do a little thing. on. We heard there's some Dr. Seuss artwork or something. Oh, okay, great. So we start talking and, uh, and, and then, uh, and he's like, you know, I think we want to, I think we want to put this on the cover. And I was like, really? Okay, great. So what they did is they ran one of our first print, um, which was a painting, a secret art painting, which are, you know, paintings that people hadn't seen before. These are paintings that he did over a 70 year period of time and had never shown to anybody. And and so it was very much like, wow, we're looking behind the scenes at Seuss. Nobody had seen this. It was kind of an adult palette. It it very much related to Seuss, but it, it related to Seuss in, in, in feel, but not, it wasn't cartoony in any way. And anyway, this was a very graphic kind of image of all these cat heads. It was called a plethora of cats, thousands of cat heads. And he would keep it on his easel in his studio. And when he needed a way of unlocking some creative ideas, he would stand up and add another cat. 
And he would just sit there and rock back and forth on this painting and just keep adding cats and keep adding cats. And he, you know, the, so the painting evolved over years. Anyway, so Hemispheres magazine is great and we want to put it on the cover. So, okay. And then we want to do a little, a tiny little article on the inside, kind of a strip down the inside, sort of, you know, like image on the cover by Theodore Seuss guys, blah, 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 blah. If we're going to do this, I, you know, I don't even remember if I said I had, they had to do this because it was the only way that they, anybody would agree to put this on the cover, or whatever. But it's, you, know, you got to put our phone number in there. Um, you know, there's no way we can do this without the phone number. I don't, anyway, so he said, fine. I don't, he doesn't care. I don't care. Fine. Right. But you, <laughs> <laughs> I gotta tell you what, you know, I want to interject, by the way, for people who have never had a price this, I have priced advertising in Hemispheres magazine. And I remember calling, and this was five or six years ago. It was $40,000 a page if you waited and got in line. Yeah. You know, if you wanted to get in right now, I think it was like 50000 or that bumped some things around for you. That's what it takes to get into. Because everybody going anywhere is reading that magazine. And of course, this is at a time period, and I'm sorry to pull some no, thunder, but I got to give it context. You got to picture this. This is before the movies were in the bulkhead seat in front of you. Yeah. This is before people had iPads or iPhones to listen to podcasts on or watch movies I brought on board. There was nothing to do on a cross-country flight or on your way to Hawaii or wherever it else that you and I have galleries, right. you know, other than at some point reach into that front pocket and pull out a Hemisphere magazine, That's right. which meant their readership every month was literally in the millions. Yeah. And in the millions of people who are captive and can afford an expensive plane ticket. And you have now how many pages running at the end? Well, it doesn't matter. We have the cover. The entire yeah. cover of the magazine is this painting. And the only thing else on the magazine just says hemispheres at the top. And over, the, I mean, it's just the painting. It's right. the freaking painting. And then you go on the inside to see what the painting is. And there's a the, literally just a one page, no, I'm sorry. It's a quarter page little strip. Of the of the page that says you know painting by Dr. Seuss and then it lists what we're doing you know limited it says a little bit about us and puts our phone number game over so Kim Kardashian's butt broke the internet was that what the thing was uh -huh, this, this, right yeah so this this broke our phone system <laughs> we, it also only takes one great phone call to come from that. Yeah, and you don't need hundreds of phone calls to come. From okay, it. but we got hundreds, right? And I'm telling you that this was at a time when I mean, it was myself, my wife. We had one other person. We were in. I mean, we were in a room probably the size of roughly this room that we're sitting in right now. I mean, that was our business. Like we didn't. You know, we had just started this thing. We're like, so, like, oh my god, what are we gonna do? So we start calling back people, and we basically say this: We're calling you back. We have however many hundreds of people we have to call back. So we're only calling you once. And I just want you to know that I think by the time we get through this list, this piece probably will no longer be available. But we'd love to talk to you. If you're interested, you know, it, here's the, I, th I guess we gave them the price. I don't even remember, which is something I never would typically would do is give them a price and a message over the phone. But, you know, we we're leaving messages for people along the way. This is you returning the calls. This is us are... returning the calls because yeah. there's no other way we could do it. We just had to return the call. Like, okay, right. we got an answering machine. This is what we say when we get an answering machine. Right. I, I can't call you back because I have too many other people that I have to call. Uh-huh. And that was it. I mean, and then it was just like on fire. And, and uh, you know, we, 
we were able to talk about that story with our with our galleries and and and, and we sold that piece i don't remember if we sold it out or i don't think we sold it out because i think that i i only wanted to sell i wanted to save some of those for leave the some of it so, wholesale yeah yeah so um did you wind up directing any of the retail to wholesale to get to see that? We didn't have any. <laughs> <laughs> didn't have anybody to direct them to. Marty Khan in Hawaii. But, but it is an old classic move, which is I'll bring you 10 retail guys. Now you open shop. Yeah. Right? You know? <laughs> yeah. Right. Here's the whole kit. It's ready to go. Yeah. Well, oh, we took, yeah, we did do that. At yeah. the end of the day, because we knew where different people lived and stuff. So we did. We had a built-in list. Absolutely. So we, we took all of those people and delivered them to, once we opened up a wholesale account, we delivered them the names of people that had called in yeah. off of Hemispheres in their area. Absolutely. That was great. That was great. So we had the story of it, you know. Because nothing is going to sell a program faster. Yeah, yeah. So uh, even you just reporting you have sales won't be the same as you handing over customers with your art. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, and we had another one of those too, where we uh, cultivate a relationship. I think at USA Today when that meant something, and um, and they put a they put a piece on on the front of USA Today in the top corner. You know, of of that was when every hotel room got a USA Today. Every day, and everybody else. Did. Every hotel room, every airline, yeah. every every public space. That was yeah. a, that was another. That was maybe a year or two later, and that was like. So those were good. So that that got the that, that definitely got the momentum rolling, and but then it was about sort of building um, a sustainable business around it, and um, yeah, you kick it off, and now you have to feed the beast. Yeah, and and we could sort of do whatever we felt was right for the industry, right? For, for the marketplace. So it's, it was totally up to us to sort of script it. So from a very, very early stage, um, the, the mantra was um, that we will always underserve the market. Um, and as that market grows, we'll continue to, you know, build the publishing along with it, but make sure that we underserve it at the same time so that it stays special. You know, that's, Does that translate into not open too many galleries, not overpublish? Not overpublish, um, yeah, not, n- not get crazy on price increases and just be really good stewards of, mm-hmm. of this work that we all felt, and I you know, still feel, you know, it's a privilege to, to be, I, I really feel this sense of responsibility of what we're doing with this. Um, I'm glad we took that route. It, it didn't mean that the money came quick. It was absolutely the right decision. You know, it's, it's why 20 years later, we still have this robust sort of marketplace uh, to work with. But yeah, we got to a point where I, re- I remember this so well. So Bill Dreyer, who, who you know, works uh, with me, uh, came to me and um, he said, all right, well, that's it. Um, we got to close it off. We got to shut it down. I go, what, what, what do you mean? He goes, we're not taking any more new dealers. So what's going to happen is a dealer has to fall off and then we're going to have a waiting list and then the uh-huh. next dealer fills that slot. So attrition only? Attrition only. He's like, you know, we... we, we and he was, it was a good, it was right. We did it, actually. We you should have run that ad in <laughs> Taste Group, taking on no new galleries. <laughs> um, 
you know, the market has changed now to, you know, in, in the sense that there's a lot of guys that got out of the marketplace back uh, in the recession, et cetera, right? So the, the last recession cleaned out a lot of people. Our market is obviously, you know, that's very different than it ever was post that uh, in terms of how many galleries are actually out there and in the business and all of that. But, you know, there was really a moment when we just put the brakes on because it was probably at about the 10-year mark. We put the brakes on because we wanted to make sure that we were, we had another 20, 30 years to go. We just didn't want to squander it. You know, I'm going to say something right now, and I can even cut it out. But I'm going to say the thing that you can't say, and I couldn't say it if I was in your position, uh-huh. either talking about my own artists and programs, that what kind of courage that is. Mm. Because that patience and discipline, it also involves a faith that you're going to maintain your relationship with the people that you are representing to have this artist, that at any point that can end. And there is a temptation for a lot of people who do what we do because that can happen at any time is to grab as much as you can in the moment that it's working because at any time that could be, you could be fired. Another publisher can come into the game or or something else can take place. You know, somebody in the family sues someone in the family and that can shut you down. But you you have to have faith that it's worth it enough even at that gamble. Yeah. We we just always felt like it was the right thing to do, quite frankly. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think think most people that... um, you know, knowledgeable about the industry would, would have done the same thing. I mean, I think knowledgeable about the industry and, and, and believed in the long-term potential of it. Maybe that's generous knowing some of the things that have kind of come in and been blown up and then gone out, you know, like blow up really big and then, and then go out. I just didn't want to have this flash in the pan. It's really what I guess I was, I didn't want to have a flash in the pan. I wanted to it just felt like it deserved more than that. And I felt like there was value in that. And and there was a lot to explore with this guy. And, and you know, telling that story, it's amazing to me now still how many people, despite the fact that, you know, we've been at this for so long, there's still people that walk in. There's people that walked in today to that gallery and had n- never knew this material existed. It's like, really? I mean, 600 million books. I mean, there's a lot of people out there. But anyway, it's it's been it's been great. So uh, you know, it's sort of a steady metered amount of releases. Mm-hmm. Events are really big for us. You know, I believe that there's sort of three pillars of of you know what drives this this business. Um, you know, it's new releases, it's events, and then it's when things sell out or urgency, right? Um, and, and so we have to build around those pillars. And that's extremely hard when yeah. you're dealing with an artist that's not with you anymore. Right. You know, the it's already finite. Right. There's no events that are going to be around the artist that you're celebrating. Right. And, uh, you know, the urgency uh, yeah. is difficult, too. Because yeah. we know... We know there's no originals, right? So it's not like you buy this one. There's only one. You buy that and it's gone. Right. Right. Um, so that... And not that you're fabricating it out of nothing. No, there's, there's, there's real urgency. I mean, that's there is. absolutely there's, right. But, but you have to find a type of urgency that isn't going to be what they're going to experience with other artists. Yeah. So it's a different kind of way you're going to have to educate your collector. Yeah. Yeah. But I, you know, look, I'm super proud of, of what we've done. There's no doubt about it. And I'm, and I'm really proud of the fact, too, that, um, you know, the secondary market has proven us right um, in that prices, people don't, 
part with these things. They're heirloom pieces. They keep them in their family. And if they do part for them, they only part, for, part with them for a lot of money. Um, shockingly, in some cases, where I just get knocked sideways. Like, really? We, we released that at $1,200. But I think it's, it's a product of something I think you, you left out and I wanted to circle back to. That's very much in praise of what you do. People engage things they own very much based upon how it was first delivered to them. Mm -hmm. uh, the fact that someone thinks of it as an heirloom is because they believed it to be so when it was first being represented. And what you were discussing, you know, the difficulties, the, the, the diff what we were just talking about, the different challenges that mm -hmm. relate to those pillars of what takes, you know, to drive an art program. Yeah. You had two directions to go. I mean, I know this just as a professional that's been in yeah. business for a long time. I can see it as a very basic route of entry map, right? You could have gone to the very simple route, which is let's just keep it what it is. We're selling Dr. Seuss images. Kids grow up in Cat in the Hat. That's how they learn to read. You have an emotional relationship with it. Let's just put it up on the wall for what it is. Mm -hmm. And we can have a business based upon that, keeping yeah. it very simple. But you went to the other place. You said, this is very important art. It's very yeah, serious sure. art. And you took it down that whole other direction. You made this a conversation that's fitting to museums. As a matter of fact, you do relationships with museums for this. You took the longer path, but I think it's what led to the point that you just made that people treat this like heirlooms. I think if it wasn't for the harder job of that foundation, mm. then it wouldn't sit that way in the secondary market. Because if it was just cat in the hat, if it was just snitches on the beaches, who cares? The kids are grown up. Let's just put it on eBay. Fair enough. Uh, and and you're right. And and I think um, we you know we did and uh, we do these museum exhibitions um, because we really believe that you know the work that he did is important and the stories and 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 it's fascinating. I mean, this is a behind the scenes look at a guy who has impacted virtually every one in four people in the world and from you know familiar with Susan had some interaction with him. So to go behind the scenes and learn more about him and and his vision through this work is really really cool and you know, museums, it's important. It also does go back to the early part of our conversation where I said, you know, surrealism is something that stuck with me um, as, it as it relates to my family's experience with Salvador Dali. And what really tipped the scales on this thing for me and, and why I got involved in it originally was, was not only because I thought it had really great commercial appeal and, and broad appeal in that sense. But I, I always want to be intellectually stimulated by what by what we're doing. And I believed in Suits as a real artist that he was, he, he really, I mean, he spent a year making these books. He did four drawings for every final line drawing that he did in the books. I mean, he took this so seriously and he knew the subtlest moves could completely change the tenor of what it was that he was doing. And when you go back and look at his concept drawings, I'm now speaking of the children's books, you go back and look at the concept drawings for the children's books, he makes these tiny little moves in the drawing or in, in, in the writing. It's like he just kept paring it down and honing it down and refining it and making it better and making it better. And I love that. But I also loved when I looked at these images and it happened just when I was buying a green eggs and ham book for my um, first nephew. And I was standing in line at the store and I was flipping through the pages and all of a sudden I was like, oh, wait a minute. This guy's a surrealist. Like, this is crazy. Look at these drawings. <laughs> this doesn't 
happen? Like, there's something more going on here. And it just, you know, brought all that sort of Salvador Dali stuff back. We since, you know, through research, um, we, we got a hold of these letters that he wrote to his friend at Dartmouth College and that gentleman's grandson, we found, we do research, we have one person on staff that does research, Seuss. Like what they did. No kidding. Yeah. And so we, we, we found this gentleman and he had these letters that Seuss wrote his grandfather from Paris in 1926. He was in Montparnasse when the Surrealists were doing their first exhibition and sitting in the cafes and talking about their ideas and doing all this stuff. And he was there. He wasn't, a, he wasn't there at the table with them, but he might have been in that chair right there listening and watching. And he went, you know, went to the exhibition and, and he moved to New York and the surrealist exhibitions started happening in New York, you know, and it just, it just fed his mind. But I love that. Yeah. So for absolutely. me, like I could, now I could stand and deliver. Like, you know, I could stand in front of all those people that said no, no, no to me at our <laughs> expo and say what I really think, you know, like, hey, this is real. This is like, this guy's a surrealist. Um, it has a backbone to it. It has a backbone to it. Yeah. So that really kind of fuels. And I think it's, it goes back to the earlier part, of the converse, earlier part of the conversation, which is that requires an art dealer. Yeah. You know, that, and it's not to toot the horn of our profession uh, or, you know, excuse our existence, but I think like anything, it requires a storyteller. Right. Someone has to stand in front of it and to carry forward that history. That won't speak for itself in that way. Sure. But it's all there. Yeah. You know, and I, I'm often, when I do trainings and I talk to uh, art dealers about representing the kind of artists we represent, and there's a unique thing that we share in the kind of artists we both of us represent, which mm. is we represent art that's very recognizable. They already have a relationship with some aspect of it before they ever came into the gallery. Yeah. And I said, there's a danger that comes with it as much as a positive. The positive is that they're excited from the word go. Unlike a decorative art gallery or selling decorative art, where there is a arc that works its way up, if you were to plot on a graph the sale, you know, someone comes in, they're a little bit interested, the art's kind of pretty, and, and bit by bit, you're, you're pushing the needle up, you're telling them a little bit more about the artist, you're pointing out things in the craft of producing the painting, and they're like, yeah, yeah well, he really does do a good job with light and color or whatever yeah. it is. In this, it's like the opposite graph. From the word go, it's, it's Dr. Seuss. <laughs> yeah, right. right? And right, the right. needle's up there at 11, yeah. right? And then, unfortunately, it just drops from that point because you've already gone to the peak yeah, and it becomes a very different job for the type of art dealers that you and I work with, which is instead of the build up, it's a scaffolding that they now have to create the support yeah, that experience. Right. And they say, you're not just having that experience because you love Dr. Seuss. Yeah. You're having that because you're having a visceral reaction to a whole lot of things that's inside that painting right. that you're feeling and your perspective and you've always experienced, but you just don't know the stories about why it's there in the first right. place. That's a huge, I totally agree with that. But it's fun being in that position to, to do that and, and being excited about it. I was telling this story last night. It's a different artist, but um, one of my first exhibitions of Eric Fischel's work, and I was at this you know, contemporary fair and we were kind of coming out and launching it. And I was really excited about it. I was really proud that we were doing this. And we had a really beautiful painting that I loved. And uh, this, this is about sort of the passion of the art dealer and the storytelling, right? 
and so I, and I have a client who comes in. It wasn't my client, but he walked in and we're having this conversation. Now we're getting engaged about this painting. We spent, I mean, we spent almost an hour on this painting, like, and, and, and we're talking about it. And, and that's a little, Eric Fischel's a little bit of the same thing because there's, in that world, everybody knows Eric Fischel. And, and so you're, you know, you're backfilling a little bit. Um, most people probably in the general world don't know Eric, but in that he world. He happens to be a favorite painter of mine, okay. actually. But, okay, fine. But, but you're right. It's a but, very. But it's, a, it's in a different, it's in a, in a different segment where people, where he is a hero to people. In any event, this this happened to be in this, in that segment, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a similar experience. But so we're talking about it, and we're just you know we're just, and he's like, okay, he's like, I, I, I'm going to do this. I want I want the painting. We're both sitting there looking at it. We're like rubbing our chins, and I said, yeah, it's sold. And he goes, what do you mean? It goes to me, and I go, no, to me. <laughs> 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 and, you know, it was like one of these, I, I, I had talked to myself, you know, I, I, and I believed all of it. And it just was like, but that's the fun of being an art dealer. And that's the fun of being passionate about all of this. Right. And thank God I bought I me. Mean, it's one of my favorite things that I, that I own is one of my, but, um, he wasn't psyched about it. <laughs> That's, by the way, a bad lesson in relationship building. <laughs> yeah, but, but come on, the, the 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 confidence in your product is through the roof. Yeah, you know right. I mean? right. Right. You know? like, oh god! You, know, you don't just but, you don't just talk it. <laughs> yeah, it was really funny. It was really funny. But that's how we should be. I mean, you know, you can't be that every day on everything you do. But if you have that sort of bedrock in you, then it's this is a fun job. So I love when consultants, you know, want to want to own a piece of art, right? They they're delivering a Dr. Seuss message, and you know they want that in their home. The consultant, like that's that's amazing. They look at it every day in the gallery and present it to somebody every day. But they actually want to have it in their home too. Awesome. We've done this num a number of times where we've put on a behind the scenes sales contest. Yeah. Not like, hey, whoever is the top salesperson this month is going to, you know, win a piece of artwork. But we find out who the top salesperson was and we show up at the end and give them a piece of artwork. Yeah. And we want to do it over and over again with different art dealers for that reason, which is the unfortunate thing is, particularly with a young art dealer like the one we were talking about earlier, it might be a long while before they own a piece themselves like this. Yeah. And how you know, look, I started pretty young myself. It's awkward to be in a position where you're you're talking to fifty year olds about buying you yeah. know twenty, thirty thousand dollar items or whatever, and that's still out in outer space to you. Right. right. You know, you right. have no experience of it. You don't yeah. even have one piece in your home. Right. And just the difference that it makes to just be able to say you have a piece. Oh, that's great. Yeah. It's it's great. I'm out of time, actually. All right, that's fine. I want to thank you very much <laughs> for all the time you put in. As I said, it's probably going to wind up being a two-parter with okay. how you and I went on, so appreciate it. I don't know about you, but as far as I'm concerned, part two was just as good as part one and well worth it. I want to thank Bob Chase again. He was fantastic about participating in our conversation and I hope you enjoyed it just as much as I did. Hey, if you're enjoying this show and, and you want to keep it going, 
and you're hoping it's going to continue to go on and on and on. And, well, there is one thing you can do. And, and don't worry, as I've told you in the past, I'm not looking for any money. This is free. But there is a way to drop a little jingle jingle into the old tip jar. And that is, well, it's two things. One, go over to iTunes, write a review. That means a lot. What even means more is subscribe to the show. If you're sitting right now in front of a computer, I got news. There's a much easier and much more enjoyable way to be listening to what is a somewhat long podcast. Make sure it's downloaded on one of those portable devices like your Android or your iPhone or your iPad. And that way you can take it anywhere. You can sit at the beach. You can listen to it on the commute into work. Whatever it is that you do on the move, hell, you can listen to it while you're doing dishes. I don't care. But it does two things. One, it makes it more enjoyable to you and two apple notices when i get more subscribers and then they tell more people about it it really works the other thing you can do is you can share some love with the folks who are sponsoring this podcast not by money but in partnership by course the fine folks over at redwood media group allison zucker pullman who you can check out at relevantcommunications.net and of course my friends over at Art World News, make sure to read, make sure to advertise in that fantastic magazine. And until next time, may the coconuts fall from the trees directly at your feet. Good night, my art dealers. Good night. You have been listening to The Art Dealer Show. You can find out more about The Art Dealer Show at artdealer.show. And you can find us at all the many different forms of social media at the handle, yeah, you guessed it, Art Dealer Show. 